Coreal Lake on the Invermore fishery was just fabulous altogether for big sea trout. It was a long walk into it. You took you maybe an hour to get into it. You parked the car at Lugin and you walked up over the mountain and you got to it and there was a house out on the island uh, on Coreal and uh, but any angler that used to fish Connemara in the old days, well, Glenic Murren and Costello were very good, but but for me that lake was it just had a lot of big sea trout, you know, two, three, four pounds or even bigger. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. For this week's episode, we're speaking to Paddy Gargan, the recently retired IFI fishery scientist who has a wealth of knowledge about fish conservation, habitat restoration and stock numbers. Paddy talks to us about the huge changes he has seen during his career, as well as his own love of sea trout fishing, and he lets us know about a book he is currently working on detailing the sea trout fisheries of Connemara. Paddy is also asking for help from people who have any archive material relating to sea trout in Connemara via photos, catch records, stories, maps, anything that will help him in researching and writing the book. So if you do have something that you think might be of help, you can send it on to him on paddygargan at gmail.com. So that's paddygargan at gmail.com. And Tom, I'm sure you'll have some stuff there that you'll be able to send on. Yeah, actually, I was thinking of that, Dara. Oh, yeah, how's it going? But I, I, was, I was thinking of that. And I was thinking, well, I wouldn't have a huge amount. Um, I have a picture of me with my first sea trout from Lahaina in 1978. And um, it's huge. So I, I don't think it's of much value beyond the Sullivan family house or beyond me. really. So there wouldn't be a huge amount. Unfortunately, while, while I did get to fish the sea trout locks back there, I didn't get to fish them that often. And by the time the collapse had come, then, and Paddy mentions it there, um, I was um, I was still young enough and and didn't get a chance didn't get a chance to fish them as often as I would have liked. So uh, I'll still be rooting through things. Um, I, I know there's a picture of my uncle with a big fish from Ina, picture there from uh, that'll be back from the mid eighties. So I'll, I'll have a look for that. But anything else I come across, uh, I'll see. But hopefully, it's one of those books I would say do well because you know the Joe Crane episode we did, which was hugely popular. People mm-hmm. have this grow for and harken back to the good old days and you know any kind of pictures or books anything that deals with it, i think will will do well yeah yeah i i think they will as, as you said like i mean when we joe on that was a really popular one as well because people love to hear about these places and i mm. think it's almost a bit uh, there's a bit of it's tinged with a bit of sadness yeah. when we when we when we talk about them uh because it's what 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 we had and what we don't have anymore it's very interesting as well that um because uh, he mentions Kareel as well. And I've, Kareel has pro- um, popped up so many times, popped up with Joe. When we're talking to Joe, popped up again. Yes. And when I talk to other people, you talk to people who who, who were lucky enough to fish it, they'll mention Kareel. It, it must have been a fantastic night. And as we said, the big walk into it. It's like talking about the 1970s Brazil football team. <laughs> Yeah, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, do yeah. you remember Brazil? Oh, the yeah. remember back in the day. Oh, yeah. that was the football. That was the way football yeah. used to be. That was the way it was, and that's the way it should be. Yeah, we'll yeah. never see it again. Well, it was ruined by money. There's a lot yeah. of similarities, maybe. Yeah, there are a lot of similarities, <laughs> actually. Yeah. I was going to say total uh, football, but sorry, that was Holland. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or soccer, maybe you should call it now. It oh, yeah. On. Well, okay. We really might digress in there. <laughs> How's the fishing been for you? Uh, it's, as I said last week with this heat wave that came in it's been uh, forget any daytime. I've done a bit of canis fishing in the morning some success uh, hasn't been fantastic up, up at this part of the lake hatches of canis have been patchy and uh, actually in this fine weather 
particularly up here, it's been gas in the morning. Get, and you wouldn't think it. A really strong northeasterly wind about four in the morning. And lasts for a couple, it lasts for a couple of hours and then starts to go calm just when you, you know, you want it to be the other way. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's kind of put a kibosh on it. Yeah, I got out a couple of times. and um, But that's been it at the moment. The weather's promised to cloud up again this yes. weekend. Uh, I'm actually out again now. So look, we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed for it. But um, yeah, look, it's 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 been a tough one. Talking to most people. And we, we are going to um, uh, do a bit of a review on the Mayfly across the country. But uh, yes. definitely, I know from here on Carbids, it'll go down as... Um, not one to remember. Yeah, it's it's not been one to remember. It's been a it's been a toughie. And yes, Sheelan has been great, and Arrow has been great, and we want to cover that probably next week. Um, in terms of yeah, and just talk. It's it's nice to get around. I mean, like, and I know it as well. Cara generally gets a lot of the kudos all the time, and you know, I suppose it's back to the old football scenario. You know, what I mean, you know, Liverpool did finish in fifth this year. You know, so you, know, you can't be top all the time. <laughs> I'm a Man United fan, so I'm just yeah, and I'm lamenting and I'm lamenting the loss of our Champions League spot. But anyway, <laughs> but you know what I mean. I mean, things vary, things change, and you know, Garb did not have a good year, good Mayfly season this year. But like Rob, we're hearing from reports so far, Sheelan seems to have done very well. Arrow seems to have done well, and um, so it'd be good uh, when we do that just to yeah. get a bit of a roundup to see how it's been. Exactly. So stay tuned for that, folks. But look, let's go back to this week's episode um, and Paddy Gargan. And obviously Paddy Gargan has had a lifetime involved in fisheries, science, fly fishing itself, involved with the Galway Weir. We we talked to him a bit about that. And then he had um, decades with uh, Inland Fisheries Ireland. So it's really fascinating stuff um, Paddy has to talk about. It. And then he also delves into a bit about his book as well. So well worth a listen. And I first asked Paddy uh, to give us some of his background um, and how he got involved in the fishery science side of things. Well, I grew up in Cavan. I, I suppose like most young guys, I went fishing on trout, or sorry, for pike and perch on um, the iron catchment. And then uh, as a young teenager, I, I, I went to Loch Sheelan, which isn't very far away. And uh, I had an uncle, a priest, who used to bring me to Sheelan uh, but I didn't realise it was to, to go on oars to, to put them over rising fish, which was a great experience. But uh, I got into fishing Sheelan then, and with my interest in fishing, fishing, I went to UCD and I did a BSc and a PhD in fishery biology. And I was very lucky then in 19, early 1986, um, Ned Cusick was retiring from the Galway Salmon Weir, and I got the job as manager of Galway Salmon Weir um, in 1986. I did that for five seasons. And then in 1990, Ken Whelan was leaving the Central Fisheries Board to go to Borishul to the Salmon Research Agency. And the position came up of a salmon and sea trout biologist in the Central Board. And I was lucky enough to get that. And I continued in that for the next 32 years until I retired last year. So uh, I've only been working really with uh, the state fisheries since I left university. Well, that was a potted history in one minute. Well, <laughs> <laughs> brushing over your uh, many achievements and, and what you've done. So I'm oh, going to come to that later, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, yeah. just before we get into uh, Ned Cusack, wasn't Ned the, like he only died recently, was it last year? Yeah, he died maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah, he was, yeah. I think he was 102 or 103. And he yeah. was still catching salmon up until his like last yeah, he days. He had the distinction of being 
photograph him in Trout and Salmon magazine at a hundred, where he had caught two salmon and a salmon at a hundred. Yeah, yes, yeah. it's, um, it's yeah, yeah. It's, I, I wanted to try and interview him, um, but it yeah. just didn't happen. And I was just thinking, God, the stories and the memories, yeah, what he would have had. Like, um, what was he like yeah, as well, a he, character? He would have negotiated the purchase of the Galway fishery from John Barber in you know, in 1978, and Ed was the man that uh, negotiated that purchase. That's right. It was a private fishery until then, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It's a private fishery all along until, um, you know, pressure came to, you know, open it up. And um, uh, Ned approached John Barber, and he initially had a very high figure because it included the commercial eel fishery and the commercial salmon fishery at the traps. And, uh, um. Uh, Ned uh, reduced down the price. I, I could be wrong, but it's something reminds me of something like two hundred and twenty thousand, uh, something in that in that um, range anyway. And uh, Ned Ned got the got the deal done, and then Ned became the the first manager after the state purchased the, the fishery. Yeah. What was that like working on Galway? Where? Oh, it was fabulous. But but you see, at that time it was um, we were commercially fishing for salmon at the traps. Uh, there was a big eel fishery operating and the angling fishery along the, the river operating and drift nets were still going on at the time. So we used to patrol out um, Galway Bay. There was a sanctuary area between Spiddle and Blackhead that the nets weren't allowed to come inside. And uh, so that, that, you know, that was difficult to police because they would, the nets would drift in or they'd let them drift in. And we had, we had a lot of snatching going on and off the bridges at that time too, with the uh, salmon. And then we had a lot of, um, illegal netting for eels up the lake, up in Carib, Lower Carib. So there was a was a full on um, business. Um, you know, the commercial salmon fishery started on the first of February, and the the angling finished at the end of September, and then the eels were going right through the winter. So it was. Uh, uh, tell it, me this, Paddy. When you were there, were the boxes still in operation? Yeah, the traps in uh, in yeah. uh, down in what we call the middle bank between the Samwer Bridge. Uh, down downstream of the Samware Bridge, yeah. Could you let yeah. could, could you explain how they operated? Yeah, well, there's a fascinating history of the Galway fishery in the Watchtower um, down um, at um, uh, Wolfton Bridge. There's um, the the old fishery Watchtower there has a history of the fishery, but very briefly, um, the boxes have been there. We, we know all the owners of the Galway fishery since the Norman times, since about 1260, and all the major families in Galway over the years, and the, uh, you know the 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 various monks and and, and major families owned the owned the fishery the fishery at one time. But there's uh, there's traps uh, on either side of the river, and there's what was called the Queen's Gap or, or a King's Gap in the middle that had to be left open at all times so that there would be a free passage for salmon, and um, it was it was like an inscale. The salmon um, swam into the box, which was shaped upstream, and and they're heading up, facing upstream. So they never actually they couldn't get out once they went in. They they, they were they were um, because of their swimming upstream. They they were kind of trapped in 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 each of the, the boxes or the cribs, and um, they were fished. Um, Fairly hard from February until the end of July, uh, six days a week, and uh, 
it was quite amazing at the time. I'm sure we'll come to talk about the salmon runs, but if you think the drift netting was happening at sea, then the, the, the boxes were being fished, and then the anglers were fishing above that. So, you know, there was a lot of salmon around at that time. What was the run like back then, Paddy? We don't know because the counter went in around um, 2007, but we, we estimate now that the run is somewhere around 15,000 fish a year in on the carob. Um, there's a there's a counter in the fish pass in the centre uh, of the weir, and we, we reckon about half the fish go up the fish pass and half go up the gates. So whatever the run through the fish pass is, we double. And that, that has been as high as 22,000 in the last 10 years and down to about 12,000. So it's probably averaging 15,000. So back in, you know, in the 60s and 70s when marine survival was much better, it probably was, you know, three times that. And then you have to think of all the fish that were taken out before they reached the carb. So, um, you know, I'll come on to this later, but marine survival in the 60s and 70s when the experiment started, you know, you tag so many smolts going out and you see what percentage of them return. It was uh, 15 to 20% marine survival. And in the last 20 years, it's 5%. So uh, it's it's taken a big drop. So the run like was 45,000 probably, you reckon? It could have been. I mean, yeah, you'd have to say if the run at the moment is averaging 15,000 a there would have been a bigger run when marine survival was higher. Yeah, it may not have been as high as that, but it, but it it was it was bigger than it is now. Yes. Wow. Some numbers. <laughs> Some numbers. So that commercial fishery, Paddy, must have been quite lucrative. Yeah, it was. You know, there was up to two thousand fish being taken annually, and they were sold to the hotels and to the smokeries, and and uh, uh, it, it it was lucrative. Yeah. Um, and the eel fishery was probably even more lucrative because uh, uh, I remember uh, the well the salmon um, commercial salmon fishing stopped I think in ni- 1999 uh, and the eel commercial fishing stopped in 2009. But I remember back in the 80s uh, a ton of eels, silver eels, was worth about four thousand pounds at the time, which was very. Uh, very big money and you may you may end up catching three or four tons in a night so that was um that was uh financially very very rewarding the eel numbers i know people talk about salmon and they focus on that but the eel numbers have been decimated by was it 98 percent? they reckon yeah well yeah uh, there the, the elver runs of the small eels coming in from the ocean are are only about 12 percent of what they were before 1980 and of course, the question everybody asks is what's happened. But see, different to salmon, eels are like one spawning stock. Eels from Norway and from Germany and the Rhine or all across Denmark, France or whatever, they all go to the same place, the Saragossa. So they're one spawning stock. So if you have heavy metal pollution in Europe and you have dams on the rivers in Norway or, or even in Ireland and you have overfishing in certain places, then your spawning stock is greatly reduced because uh, it's the one stock. And then we had this uh, parasite, swim bladder parasite was introduced from the Far East, uh, uh, Anguilla cola parasite, and, and the eels, their swim bladder was infested with this parasite when they were swimming towards the Saragossa. So you basically ended up with much, much reduced spawning stock. And then when those uh, eggs hatched, they just drift back on the currents. They could end up in 
Iceland that could end up in Morocco or in Ireland. It was, you know, so uh, because of all the problems that they had trying, the spawners getting out to sea, the, the whole numbers were reduced. So therefore, the numbers of small eels coming back is greatly reduced. It's a fascinating species, like, isn't it? That we, yeah. we don't yeah. know so much still. Like. I, yeah. I have heard recently, but it's all like anecdotally, that there seems to be an increase in the number of eels. Is that so? Yeah, I think there. I mean, it's not as it's nothing like back to what it was, but there, the number we we monitor or IFI monitor uh, seven or eight locations around the country where they monitor elver re- returns, including the carob in the salmon weir, and uh, there there is some increase in the numbers, but it's still you may be getting fifteen percent of the runs that you had pre nineteen eighty, you know. But the uh, policy across Europe now is to is to stop commercial fishing and and do everything and recovery plans there is a recovery plan for eels so so that but that's going to take quite a while because they're long-lived species you know even in a rich productive catchment like carob they they would be 18 to 20 years old before they would leave to go to spawn wow um, and just tell me in terms of the galway weir number of anglers um paddy when you were there did it increase over time decline over time kind of remain steady Oh no, I think it remains steady because there are six at peak time. There are six anglers allowed in each session, so you can't increase that, you know. And there's always a big demand for 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 fishing spaces, especially when the grills are, are come in in the end of May. Yes, so I, I um, it, no, I think the numbers have said, but stayed the same. But there's probably overall. I mean, the Galway Weir is a very high demand location but i think everybody knows overall the number of anglers fishing now is a lot less than it would have been maybe 20 years ago yeah and just one thing i'd like to ask there paddy once it was switched over into the state's hands did it did it make it more open was it suddenly did it become more open for people to fish i think so yeah definitely yeah, yeah. i mean it was a private fishery uh and uh, one of the issues was that you know locals didn't get access to the fishery and uh when the state took it over they had a policy of, you know, trying to, you know, make it generally available to as many anglers as possible. And uh, yeah, it, it certainly did. It changed from a private fishery to a to, yeah. public fishery owned by the state. Yeah. Although it's still as hard as it to get onto the, I believe. It's like winning the lottery trying to get onto it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, it's only six rods in the morning and six rods in the afternoon every day. So that's, you know, it's still not a lot of space. You know, the demand, like uh, high demand, yeah, yeah. Um, it's actually somewhere I haven't fished. Um, mm. I used to spend all my summers down in Galway. My mum's family's from down there, so I know Galway very well. And I remember even as a kid walking by it, and you'd just be fascinated standing on the bridge, just watching the anglers there. And it's just even talking about it now, God, I'd love to be back down there just visiting it. Like, Tom, did it you is, fish it much? I've only ever fished it, I think it's twice, but just what you said there, and I think. Paddy will agree with me as well. For anybody who's never done it, and if you're in Galway and it's the summer, yeah, go to the Samuel Bridge and look over. Just it get is, a nice, just get an ice cream and walk down. Yeah, it's as much as it's as, it's as much an experience as walking down Key Street. But to, <laughs> yeah. to sit in the Salmon Weir and to see everybody pointing out the fish and then pointing them out to the anglers who can't see them, <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I've fished it twice, but as you know. My, my my penchant is trout. I was there once, Paddy, and I was going down step and cast, step and cast and everything. And some trout started moving inside me, right? And there was one or two good trout. And it was killing me that I couldn't go, nip up to the rod and get the 
get the nine foot five way or four way and have a go with them. But uh, yeah, but uh, no, it's it's a it's a lovely fishery and it's amazing. Uh, no more than the ridge pool in the Moy to be you know in the center of a town and fishing yeah. away. Oh, it's a very very special place. Actually, just the Watchtower. I've never been in. Is that open to the public? Yeah, I think it. It's. Um, I I was speaking to someone who said it, it was due to open recently for the summer again. Yeah, and, and it uh, it's fascinating because it has the history of the ownership of the Galway fishery since Norman times in twelve sixty or something. And uh, uh, Richard de Burgo was the f- was the owner, the first documented owner we know about um, around around that time. And uh, then there's um. There's old photographs and ex- exhibitions of, um, you know, there used to be a big draft net fishery down there, and uh, and there was a draft net fishery in in the Long Walk. There was a, a, a platform out in Spanish Arch there in the river, and uh, interestingly, um, there was a salmon caught there, sixty nine pounds in eighteen sixty six, and uh, the um, Owner of the fishery at the time, Thomas Ashworth, the fish used to go over to Billingsgate up on the train and over to Billingsgate. And when that fish got to Billingsgate, he asked for a cast to be made of it. And the cast came back and he presented it to the university in Galway. And it's still there in the Martin Ryan building, the, the cast of that 69 pound fish. Yeah. And recently we've got a, a carving done of that fish and it's now up in the Angler's Lodge in the, in the Samwear. Um, uh, the fish was caught in 1866. I think we'll have to do an, an episode, Tom, on um, the Galway Weir sometime. Yeah. I think definitely well worth it. Mm. Um, so, Paddy, from the Galway Weir, you obviously kind of cut your chops there and you went into the IFI then. Was that a real kind of... So, like, tell me about the kind of focus of your job there. Was it science, research? Yeah, what was it the was, yeah, science and research. But um, that was in 1990 and... I was mainly dealing with salmon and sea trout and my good friend Martin O'Grady was the brown trout man. And um, right throughout the 90s, a couple of things happened. We'll talk about the sea trout and the salmon farming in a moment. But in with the salmon, you know, the drift nets were going ahead unrestricted. There was no quotas. And uh, I suppose for 10 years, we were trying to get um, the... the the department and the powers that be to, to um, establish conservation limits for salmon. So in other words, you needed a certain number of fish to spawn in the catchment and uh, you should achieve that before any fish are killed. And, um, you know, leading up to the late 90s, we started looking at, um, with the help of Phil McGinnity in genetics and uh, UCC, we we started taking um, samples from the drift net fisheries and the draft net fisheries and we had gone around all the rivers looking at the de- taking clip pin clips of salmon in each river. So we knew that the genetic um, signature of each uh, salmon river. And then when you get a, a scale of a fish from a drift net, you can trace it back to its home river. And um, a lot of the work at that time was um, showing that the drift net fisheries were mixed stock, that they were taking fish from a whole load of rivers, including rivers way below their spawning uh, capacity and uh, so we were very lucky then to establish conservation limits on the rivers um, and then um, the government decided to stop drift netting in 2006 and go with the new policy of 
you've got a conservation limit each river, depending on the size of the river. Obviously, a small river in Connemara might have a conservation limit of a thousand fish, and the Corrib might have a conservation limit of ten thousand, depending on the size. And then the the challenge was to um, to try and work out whether the conservation limit was being met, and that was done in a number of ways. There was about thirty fish counters put in rivers, but um, the angling catch was a big uh, uh, step because with rivers with counters, we knew the run and we knew how many angler, how many fish were caught by anglers. So if you had a thousand fish in your run, uh, and and the anglers caught one hundred and fifty fish of that thousand, then that was fifteen percent. The anglers were catching fifteen percent. So we knew that from rivers with counters. Then we could say, and there would be, you know. There would be a range around that. We could say if we got the right catch from any river, we could estimate the total run. Uh, and we could um, judge whether that total run was above or below the conservation limit. So so, so that was a large part of the work at the time to um, move to single stock management and then assess whether rivers were meeting their conservation limit. And, we, you know, we ended up, since 2006, maybe with 40 rivers open for harvest with a quota, you know, um, if, for instance, the uh, the conservation limit is 5,000 fish in the river and we estimate the run is 7,000, then there would be a quota of 2,000 and that would be above what's required to spawn. So, you know, that policy has been in place since 2006 and there's about 40 odd rivers open, 40 odd rivers open for catch and release because they're not meeting the the spawning requirement, but they're probably close to it. And then there's about 60 mostly smaller rivers that are closed because they're well below the conservation limit. So I suppose that whole thing changed in my career from no no limits on catch. And we used to say, um, you know, let the drift nets ha- hammer them, let the draft nets, wherever they were, take them, let the anglers take them, and we hope enough get in to spawn. And that was the way some of them were managed. And that was the reality. And we're now gone to a point where they're being managed based on the spawning requirement in each river. So that was a massive change. Would you, looking back on it now, like, so we've had probably, what, 17 years of, of it. Um, yeah. Would you gauge it a success? Or do you think it needs to be tweaked or improved upon? Or Well, what was happening in parallel to that policy change was the reduction in marine survival. Because um, marine survival used to be 15 to 20 percent up to about 1980 85 and uh, then it started to decrease down to five percent so there's there's less salmon around now but you'd have to say if that policy wasn't adopted you know you couldn't continue to have had drift netting operating now and you know no restrictions on 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 fish being killed because um at least you know there's a chance for fish to recover now, there's they're only only being exploited where there's a surplus, and um, while you know it's all down to poor marine survival, uh, the management policy means that um, fish aren't being killed where they're not meeting the spawning requirement, and they're you know they have a chance to recover, giving them a chance really in these yeah. basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to ask you there, Paddy, probably hard to pinpoint, but. Would you have an idea of why there's a reduction in marine survival? Is there a main cause or is it a combination of factors? Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. And we did some tagging. We put satellite tags onto salmon kelts and looked at where they were going all across Europe. 
guys did it in Norway and Denmark, uh, in Iceland, and we did it in Ireland. And they're going to different places, but the Irish fish were going up north of uh, Iceland, up south Greenland, up to the polar front where the the cold water from the Arctic meets the warm water from from the Atlantic, where there's an upwelling. And the research seemed to show that that polar front is changing and going further north, which means that Irish salmon will have to travel further north to feed. They'll be ex- exposed to more predation. That you know, there'll be less time feeding. And ocean warming seems to be a- an impact. The more nutritious uh, plankton species that were predominant have been taken over by a different plankton species. That so the food web is changing as a result of ocean ocean warming. And there's a whole combined effect going on there. But in Norway, it's interesting. They ha- the salmon have a lot shorter journey to go to the feeding grounds than our fish because they go up to Spalberg and whatever. So their 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 journey time to to up to the cold water up there is, is a lot less and they they they're they're having a better survival. But um yeah I think I think it's just a whole combination of factors in the sea. It it does seem to be marine survival, not freshwater survival that's the main mm. driver of this. Do you find that very frustrating when you were working in a paddy in the sense of you're hands were tied so much that you could do so much for fresh yeah. water, but yet most of the damage was being done out in the ocean. And Yeah, but I think it was a case of, you know, you protect the habitat and and the management policy was and the scientific advice was in place. Don't let any salmon be harvested on, on rivers unless there's a surplus. And, you know, once that policy is in place, that's all you can do. And you hope then that marine survival will start to increase. Um but if you did anything else, you know, you'd have a lot less salmon than mm. we, we currently do have, you know. And one way of looking at it, I suppose, it'd be frightening to think what the numbers would be like if these weren't, if those, if these uh, conditions weren't put in. Yes. Uh, in absolutely. 2006, you know, it yeah. could be a lot worse than, you know, I mean, people are saying it's, I mean, it's not that it's rosy now, but it could be a hell of a lot worse than it actually is now. Yeah, absolutely. That's That's the case, yeah. What are the best conservation um, strategies that have been put in place, do you think, in terms of uh, managing the uh, stock numbers? Well, it's it's simply the policy that if if the scientific advice is, and we have we, we give advice on each of the 144 salmon rivers we have, and every year the scientific committee give advice on what the status of the stock is on each river. And... Um, Management have gone with the scientific advice since since this process started. You know, um, if there isn't enough spawners, then the advice is don't uh, have any killing of fish and have no commercial fisheries in the estuaries. And um, you know that's that's been very successful. And what's the most difficult part, like in terms of kind of I suppose the prevention shall we say is it you know keeping an eye on pollution is it what is it that you're trying to fight all the time yeah well you know there's been a lot of um regulations now in european you know water and um directives nitrous directive and various um management plans and and um have have been in place now to to protect habitat and uh, you know there's been a lot of upgrades of sewage treatment plants and a lot of you know, a lot of issues that were, you know, caused problems 20, 30 years ago are, are being resolved, you know, and, and uh, through better farming practice. And, you know, so so um, there's quite a bit of regulation now in 
you know, to do with uh, water, water uh, clarity and, and, you know, ensuring good water quality. Uh, the water framework directive would be a big one there. Yeah, and, and like, and in fairness, the water framework directive I know from having spoken to people is like in terms of what it's what it's done in terms of water quality and the kind yeah. of uh, ramifications if you don't um, yeah. adhere to it. But do you think like we speak to a lot of people say on the podcast and you'd be speaking to you know people giving out about kind of in terms of um, confirming. Uh, in terms of uh, what's going into the water. And then even, we, you know, we spoke to Pat O'Toole last week about the River Boyne and what Meath County Council gave in terms of the license to Dawn Meats. So do you still feel, though, there's like, we might have regulations in place? Mm-hmm. A, you have to enforce them, but B, um, you know, how impactful are the uh, consequences of breaking the regulations? Yeah, I mean, there's always in individual instances where you end up with, you know, breaches in the regulation and very you hear about it on various rivers but but I do think in general because we have we had a policy of electrofishing a lot of rivers uh, um, around the country every year to look at the state of juvenile stocks and, and generally you know um, the juvenile salmon are are, are, are in, in a good state and, and many rivers you know and you don't hear about the you know the, the big issues we used to have with uh, silage uh, uh, runoff and all of that now Um I do think that, you know, there's a lot closer look being kept at the uh, water quality issues. And, and, you know, it does seem um, from the scientific committee when we were when we were looking at it, that the, the major problems are for salmon are marine survival. Can I ask you actually just on the I think it was at 40 rivers that are closed, you said? About 60. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah. 60. Sorry. Do you monitor their stock levels? How has that? Yeah, that's a good question, because if you're... Um, if you've got no counter in a small river and there's nobody fishing it, you mm. ask the question, how do you uh, ever get assessment of the river or whether does it ever get opened again? But we we know from electrofishing as uh, juvenile salmon that if you and you, you, you fish at various sites around the catchment for five minutes. And if you get an average of 17 salmon fry, you're likely to have had good spawning in the previous year. And we know that from rivers where we have counts. And, and so on a small river, uh, we do a lot of electrofishing, and if the if the average salmon density is over seventeen fry, then that river gets open for catch and release, and that allows an estimate then of the angling catch to be you know if, if anglers catch fifteen percent of what's there, if you get an angling catch, you can work out the total run on the river, and you can c- compare that against the conservation limit. So there is a mechanism for getting small rivers uh, assessed and potentially open if the stock recovers. And have you seen, like, when a, a river is closed, that because you're keeping an eye on it, yeah. that are you, do you see a kind of a, is it an incremental increase? Like, I suppose what I'm trying to ask is, with the closure of it, how yeah. big are the jumps in terms of the improvement, you know, or does it come back to that marine survival that if it's... Yeah, it does. I, you know, you, you, you may not see a doubling of the run just because... It's closed because there may have only been, you know, thirty or fifty salmon caught on that river in in normal times. So, I think it's a case where, you know, you're letting all the salmon that return in, and they're, you're letting them all spawn. And over a period, you're hoping that 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 will contribute to a recovery. You know, and it may take ten or fifteen years for that recovery to take place, but that's the policy that you know, you're giving them the best opportunity and. There's also a lot of habitat work targeted at these small rivers that are closed. You know, there's um, 
there's funds there under the conservation stamp fund to, to do work on spawning gravel and you know various uh, nursery uh, areas uh, in tandem with with with, with um, you know not not taking any fish from those rivers. How did you find that in terms of like was the government proactive in terms of uh, taking on board the scientific advice from you guys? Oh, definitely. I I, I was involved up until from all along up until 2022 and. I can safely say that when we provided the scientific advice, it was taken on board and there was that was it. Um, you know, if our advice was that this, the stocks are not um, uh, sufficient on whatever river, um, that was that was the case. It was we never had um, any issues in terms of uh, management. They always uh, accepted the scientific advice. So the only problem I have with this, right, and I've spoken about this before in the podcast, is. You have the advice, right? Scientific advice is saying this, right? And we're talking about salmon catchment and salmon numbers, right? But then you have another government department where the policy is around aquaculture. And to me, there just seems to be <laughs> a dichotomy going on there uh, yeah. in the sense of it's almost as if one department is accepting advice saying, and I know their remit is different to maybe where the aquaculture kind of industry comes on board, but then you have another department who is seems to be you know, all hell bent on developing more aquaculture, which we know is um, harmful to um, salmon and sea, sea trout stocks. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, well, maybe if I can just go back a moment, I think your initial question was how have fish stocks changed over my time in fisheries? And uh, yeah, what happened in the late 80s was that salmon farming started to be developed, particularly in Connemara. And um, uh, in year one of any of this production, the, the salmon are small. They're only, you know, smolts or post-smolts. They're only, you know, 10, 12 inches at the start. So they don't have a problem in the first year. But when they get to be bigger, three and four kilo fish in the second year, uh, they, they do um, harbor a lot of sea lice, which gets into the environment. And, and the sea trout picked it up and they have no protection. And uh they were coming back in what was called prematurely. You know, they go to sea in May mostly and they come back maybe in the first floods in July as these harvesters are finnock, about three quarters of a pound. And they were coming back in at the end of May, early June, covered in lice. And uh, so that that happened in all of the bays where, where we had salmon farming develop. And then, of course, the stock collapsed in 1989. And, um, you know, we spent most of the 1990s trying to prove the the issue and sampling sea lice and whatever uh, on on sampling sea trout for sea lice and uh, r- I've written many scientific papers on it. But um, yeah, it, it 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 it's been a major issue. And uh, uh, you might ask what the solution would be. Well, certainly, I think it's easy to solve if the will was there. Move to land based. Um, I always thought there should be, you know, small little units around Connemara, for instance, where you had recirculating tanks. You pump the water in; it's filtered. Uh, you, 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 you could even have a, a wind turbine to heat the water to a certain degree. The effluent going out is filtered, and you have your production unit on land, and you have no environmental impact. You have no sea lice issues, or no escapes, and you're providing employment. And uh, I think that would have been. You know that that probably would certainly uh, the move to land-based would is you know is very desirable to try and recover the sea trout stock in the long term. He were there you mentioned was the will. You're a scientist. You're an expert in this. 
you mentioned the research papers, you know, the science is incontrovertible around it, isn't it? I, I would say so, yeah. And yet, yeah, but you see, you've got to remember there, somebody who's involved in this question is the accountant. Yeah, but you're basically also- it's more cost. So you're looking, I mean, all these, correct me if I'm wrong, but fish farms are private entities and they exist solely to make money. And surely the problem here isn't a paddy that a land-based farm initially yeah. is, is, is more, it's costlier. The, the initial setup costs are more costly, yeah. Um, but uh, I was involved in a conference with NASCO, the North Atlantic Salmon Conservation, about two years ago, where we we looked at the cost or got uh, people, uh, experts, to look at the cost of establishing land-based. And it, it's actually not that much more expensive in the long term when you when you do have your initial expense of setup costs. But the, the, once you're in operation for a period, um, the costs start to level out. And, um, you know, surely we, we could have had some experimental or pilot schemes put in place, uh, you know, to show that it's a su- success, to see how financially more expensive it is or not. And, 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 and you know, to look at alternatives to this, these open net pens, um, which we've had since the mid 1980s, and and uh, you know, um, certainly NASCO have called for a move towards um, land-based salmon farming. I get so frustrated, mm. yeah, I'm not I'm not asking for an answer for it. Just maybe your insights into it is. On the one hand, you have sustainability. You know, mm. it's the buzzword. The government's talking about sustainability. You know, we hear all the time about farming and emissions, and we're not yeah. meeting our you know, emission targets, right? We have your work that was going on in terms of conservation, habitat, you know, um, improving the, the 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 salmon stocks as you could do it in the freshwater, right? So you had the government listening to that science. We have all this body of science, which, as you said, is incontrovertible around the damage that aquaculture does to salmon and sea trout stocks. And yet, on the other hand, you have another government department that willingly, and as I've been told, we've been led to believe that there's a scientific paper that was produced like 10 years or so ago that calls into question the actual damage of aquaculture. And they're using this one paper as the basis for their government strategy to justify continuing the policy of developing aquaculture. It makes no sense at all to me. And surely from a scientific community that's used to advising government, it must be just, I I just don't understand how, how it makes sense, you know, and that's that's the problem yeah. I have with it. Like, yeah, I think you're right in what you say. Um, it's hard. It's hard to. to I said, well, we have one government department uh, responsible for protecting salmon and sea trout stocks, and you know, and then we have a different department responsible for licensing and uh, development of aquaculture, and um, you know, all along we we've never really been able to sort of come to a an agreement as to you know what what might be the the right strategy to pursue it's just been two two policies been pursued in parallel without without um you know reaching any 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 conclusions on the issue and why isn't there the will do you think is it because of the supposed economic benefits that agriculture brings yeah well <clears throat> It's it's I don't know how to answer that one. Um, there is a policy of development of salmon aquaculture, you know, uh, and um, 
even though it's unsustainable and does well, does damage like that's <laughs> it depends on who you're talking to in terms <laughs> of whether they agree with that or not but uh yeah. even though 99 yeah. of the scientific community backs up with yeah yeah you know you're touching the nerve there uh but i suppose the you know i certainly would like and and i know that ifi have a policy of moving to land-based aquaculture and um that's you know if you want to look into the future and in 30 or 40 years time in Ireland and in the West Coast, will there still be open net salmon farms um, or will they have moved to, you know, the, there's there's sort of halfway house between moving totally on land. They have these semi-closed containment mm-hmm. uh, farms in Norway where, you know, there's no mixing of the, the water from the farm to the outside environment. So the lice don't escape and there's sort of, semi-closed, semi, you know, it's a halfway house. There's there's plenty of technology going on at the moment uh, to try and minimise the, the, the impact. Um, but I would certainly hope that at some point in the future, we would, we would have moved away from the open net pen farming that we currently have. I think you mentioned there frustrating, Dara. And I think to hear you saying that, Paddy, I think it's very frustrating. I find it very frustrating when you mention, you know, land-based farms and that they seemingly could be the, the answer to all the problems. And you say that they haven't even been tried on the West Coast here, you know? No. That, that's that's really frustrating, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, the th- and the thing about it as well as Thomas, I think, and again, you talk about Will, um, Paddy, is like all, the, and I think this is part of the problem, and, we, and we've spoken about this before, Tom, is the sustainability issue, the mm. quality yeah. issue of, like, I don't eat any I used it. I won't touch any farmed um, salmon now, any farmed aquaculture now, because there's no quality issue around it. We don't know what the quality is. But if if we saw similar, like, again, I'm just thinking of farming and carbon emissions and all that kind of stuff. If there was a similar kind of light shone on the damage that's being done to the environment from the current aquaculture setup, you would hope to think that there would be some kind of pressure put on and i think that's part of the problem and we spoke we did an episode on the salmon summit um a couple of months ago buddy um with uh, the icelandic guy from um nas elvar. Elvar. yeah elvar and and i think he made a good point which is that out in the ocean they're kind of hidden don't really see what's going on in the ocean whereas you know you could be driving down through the countryside and you see farms you know you might you'll see a river going through fields you know it's it's a much more visible thing so that if there is an impact it's kind of easier to to kind of um do something about it or be engaged about it whereas i think that's part of the problem seems to be it's out there it's under the ocean don't yeah. really get like get to see we it. said it was highlighted here before if the if let's say the cattle industry suffered the same mortality rates that happened in the the salmon aquaculture industry there'd be absolute uproar absolute yeah. uproar entirely but it's as as you said there darren and you know patty it's kind of hidden from public view yes do you see at any European level, Paddy, like even just anecdotally from kind of conferences? Did you see it? Like, again, I bring this comparison to how the EU was very quick to bring in uh, banning the combustible engine from 2030. Like, um, they just they put in the law. That was it. It's happening 2030. Get your act together. It's not, you know, do you see any kind of similar kind of moves afoot? No, I, I think the EU in recently in the last year, 18 months, have have. Um, begun a review of aquaculture in Europe. I don't think they've produced a report yet, but I think they have, I, I, before I retired, I was had some involvement there. 
there was a, a review being undertaken. Um, but how much that will, you know, transpire to individual countries. I mean, there's there's only Ireland and Scotland, I think, in, in Europe that have salmon farming. Um, Norway's not in the EU. And, uh, you know, it may be left to individual countries to manage their own industry. Uh, but I, I, I think the EU had have begun a review of, of aquaculture. Like we talk about Connemara, sea trout fisheries there, like... Yeah. Too late, in many respects, you know, isn't it? And that isn't that yeah, the danger. Unfortunately, what happened was, um, and it was interesting. Um, we put uh, upstream and downstream traps on some of the fisheries, like Invermore and Gowla. And um, we, in some years in the nineties, we were only getting twelve or fifteen of these finnock going upstream, and they don't really contribute to spawning of the eggs laid in sea trout fisheries. Those harvesters of finnock only lay about twelve percent of the eggs, but in Three years for, uh, on, when the, 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 you know, the, the progeny of those fish would be going to sea, we were getting five and 6,000 sea trout smolts, which was impossible from 12 or 15 finnock that don't really spawn. So it showed that the, bar, the brown trout in all these lakes had a genetic uh, propensity to produce sea trout smolts because they would have interbred with the sea trout over generations. And uh, so the, those brown trout, were pumping out sea trout smolts to some extent for a number of years. And then as the years went on, the smolt run, you know, dropped to 2,000 or 1,000. And what we ended up doing was basically losing the migratory strain. And if you go out to Connemara now, there's, I mean, there are sea trout still returning to some fisheries. It's not all doom and gloom, but in in, in the many of them, there's loads of brown trout in the, in the lakes, but they've lost the migratory strain. And, you uh, know, we wrote a paper at one stage uh, to say how would the stock be recovered and largely through strain because sea trout stray much more than salmon. So if you did remove, you know, local open net salmon farms over a period of time, you would get strays from other fisheries and uh, you, you could recover the stock. But it seems at the moment in many of these fisheries that we've lost the migratory strain of trout to go to sea. Well, that's just to ask you, Paddy, just off my own bat there. So. I've heard the argument that a brown a sea trout is a brown trout is a sea trout. Yes. Is that the case? It, like you've done, you've, well, you've been involved with them for so long and you've managed yeah. fisheries, which we get onto as well. So what, what's your view on that statement? Yeah, I think the literature you read will say that sea trout and brown trout can, can, can spawn with each other or interspecies mm. spawn. I mean, when even if two sea trout spawn and their eggs hatch out, not all of those will go to sea. Some of them will stay behind, <laughs> but they are—they have the progeny of sea trout, and yeah. they will then maybe produce progeny that will go to sea. So it's a kind of a whole intermixing thing, and that's why that experiment showed us that even though we, well, we didn't, but the, the run of sea trout back into these systems stopped. We were still getting significant smoke runs from the the ancestral stock that was there in the brown trout that had the, the migratory gene to go to sea. So, so that they would be, they, I mean, it would never be a case where, you know, brown trout only spawn with brown trout and sea trout only ever spawned with sea trout and every progeny of a sea trout went to sea and became a sea trout. That, that wasn't, you know, that isn't the case or wasn't the case. That's fascinating what you say that, yeah. you know, some of the eggs or you know, some of the, the progeny from two sea trout, you know, not all of them go to, not all of them will, go migratory 
Yeah, and the other L is that some of the progeny of brown trout will go to sea. Yeah. Do you remember, um, Buddy, this, the heyday of the kind of the Connemara sea trout? Yeah, fishes? I was very lucky because um, when I was in UCD, I, I, I got a call to say that um, John Prendergast had just taken over the Zetland Hotel and would I be interested in running the Gaula fishery and then the nearby fishery, the Invermore fishery, for Noel Ryan in 1983, which is 40 years ago now. And uh, <laughs> I was delighted. Um, and, they, you know, they were great fisheries, Gaula Lake and places like Kuril, you know, famous sea trout fisheries, Lugin and <clears throat> Invermore. And um, I was delighted and I spent a number of years there. And that was before the sea trout stock collapsed. So that has been one of the reasons why I've decided to write the book, because... Um, I was there while it was still good, you know, and, uh, you know, would have fished other places around like Ina and Screeb and Balnehinch and all those other fisheries there. So, uh, um, yeah, it, it, I think um, one of the things that uh, drove me on through my career was having been there and knowing how good it was and then having seen how it changed was, was um, you know, a driver to try and get the problem solved. Any particular favourite fishery for you? Oh, I think that Kareel Lake on the Invermore fishery was just fabulous altogether for big sea trout. It was, um, you, you know, if it, it was full of islands and rocky shores and um, it was a long walk into it. You it took you maybe an hour to get into it. You parked the car at Lugin and you walked up over the mountain and you got to it and there was a house out on the island uh, on Kareel and, uh, but, any angler that used to fish Connemara in the old days, well, Glenick Murren and Costello were very good, but but for me that lake was, it just had a lot of big sea trout, you know, two, three, four pounds or even bigger, and uh, of course anglers probably took too many sea trout with them in those days, but then you had to carry your gear and your sea trout back down the mountain again to <laughs> to get home. But uh, I often heard talk of Kareel or ice. But I never got to fish it. Um, but it was meant to be an absolute wonderful fishery. And it's interesting that you say there, because there was a big walk into it. But, you know, if, if anglers are willing to put up with a walk like that, I think it said yeah. something about it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you still fish it? Well, I think that fishery hasn't opened. Um, unfortunately, uh, the sea trout, are, are, you know, the numbers are extremely low uh, in some of those Connemara fish. Not in all of them, but in certainly some of them, um, um, I don't think anyone is fishing uh, the Invermore anymore. And hence, I suppose, one of the reasons why you want to write this book, Paddy. Um, tell us uh, a bit more about it. You kind of kind of look at the the heyday of it, a bit of the history, yeah. the science, you know, in terms of the, the kind of the rise and the fall, I suppose. Yeah, is that yeah the kind I, of... I, I'm interested in looking at the old history as well. I've been reading some books from the 1840s and 60s where anglers, English anglers coming over and describing, you know, the catches in those days, you know, and some of them, like we've got 67 sea trout on, on maybe on Finlock and, or Delphi or whatever. And, and uh, you know, some of these stories are amazing going back that far. But so I'm going to hopefully have a history of the, the ownership and the, the fishing in the old days. And, and that's why, I, I was putting out the call for anybody that has photographs or, you know, old history of the fisheries or any interesting old photographs or catches of sea trout or anything that would contribute towards, you know, um, getting the essence of what 
sea trout fisheries in Connemara were like. And I tell you what we'll do is we'll put an email address yeah. in the show yeah. notes. So if people listening do, so you're looking for photos, yeah. stories, yeah. any kind of archival yeah. material, Records, anything like yeah, that. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm hoping that this will end up being, you know, if somebody says, well, what about the Connemara sea trout fisheries that I'll have ca- encapsulated it all in one kind of coffee table book where you can read your chapter on, you know, whether it's, um, Kylemore or, or the Clifton River or wherever, and uh, you know, and you can leave it down, and 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 then they'll, I think it all will have to be tied together as well, you know, the geology of Connemara and all of that. I mean, for instance, on the Corrib, we don't get a run of sea trout because it's such a productive lake that the the sea Corrib really is the sea for those trout. Whereas in Connemara, they have to go to sea. Uh, well, not all of them do, but and they're mostly female fish that go to sea, and you know. They produce their eggs, and then they're back in. So, so to put on any growth, they have to go to sea. So, I'll, I'll be trying to to sort of um, describe what makes Connemara and what what tied them all together in in geology and all of that. It's very interesting because I, I asked you just before you came on, Paddy, because we we're just chatting about it there. The number of fisheries, even like I was amazed. What do you reckon? Like separate fisheries within the Connemara region, there's how many? There's about 17 individual catchments, and, and then there's a couple of smaller ones that, uh, you know, that also used to have sea trout. But, yeah, there's 17. I intend uh, to include at least 17 catchments. That's yeah. Amazing. And tell me, Paddy, have you fished all of them? No, not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I suppose, like most people, you fish the, the bigger ones, you know, yeah. places like Costello and... Uh, Screeb and Gowl and Inver and Ina and Balna Hinch and those, you know, Kylemore. And then there's a, there's a whole lot of smaller ones, like places like Furnace, Loch Ness Furnace, Letter McCoo, Duhulla. Um, I fish Duhulla. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're less well known. But when I've been reading up in the old days, they were very productive, those fisheries. And there's finding the descriptions of people catching very good catches in the smaller fisheries as well, places like Inverbeg and whatever. So, yeah, uh, any help I can get with with information or whatever will be welcome. I actually just mentioned there when you're talking about old things. Is there on the Screve fishery, which was a phenomenal fishery? Yeah. Is there not a rock on one of the islands there on the lower lakes to some a phenomenal salmon catch or something? Do you know anything about that? I don't know. Um, I remember being told that there on one of the islands on you know the lake that's yeah. the brackish one right at the end. Yeah. That some guy had a phenomenal, I'm not going to say the number, there's something like 50 is sticking in my head, but that sounds crazy. But yeah. there's a memorial rock put up to him. I must try and find yeah. out. I think somebody told me back here once who was managing it once. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm not aware of that now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it might be in the book. I'll have to go and look it up. That'll be my job, Patty. I'll look up back for you. <laughs> Yeah, I tell you, buddy, good job you're retiring now because the amount Seriously? of work you've got. Yeah, that is, yeah. That's a phenomenal uh, undertaking, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. 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 But I think it's going to be really popular because I know from the Joe Crane episode mm. where we were talking about the Connor, hugely popular people. Anytime we mention Connemara sea trout fisheries back in the golden days, there's a massive interest in it. And I think definitely a book like this yeah. would really uh, capture people's imaginations. Yeah. Before we um, finish up, Paddy, so you're retired now from IFI. Yep. Um, are you getting a lot more fishing I am, done? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
And uh, where are you, where is where is it salmon you yeah, still well, go after sea trout or what? Yeah, uh, between Galway and my Cullen, uh, looking out over the lower Corrib. So I fish in Corrib a lot, and then I when I get days in the Galway salmon where it's fabulous. But then I go to Connemara as well. I go to the Erith and Delphi and places like that, Kylemore. So yeah, and sometimes I just go along with friends who are fishing and just go for the day, you know. So I also go up to the Old Moor and the Old Duff and Mayo, which is always very good. Uh, one thing I want to say as well, you mentioned your uncle there, uh, Hannan Gargan, yes. uh, whose uh, features, if the, he's on the video of Loch Arrow from years ago, telling the, the very good joke, actually. It's worth listening to that. But uh, just to say to you, I mean, my dad has passed away, always talked really fondly of your uncle. Yes. And whenever there was a national honour or anything, he used to love meeting up with them afterwards because I think they might both have partaken of a couple of half ones after the after oh, yeah. was yeah. on. And he, he really, really loved, he really loved meeting up with your uncle. But he was oh, really yeah. well, known in the Anglin scene, Canon Gargan. Yeah, he was famous. And he, actually, I I just can't think of the exact book now, but I, when I've been reading up, he's credited with bringing the Green Peter to Connemara to fish for sea trout because he would have been fishing the Green Peter on Sheelan. And uh, one author who I'll mention in the book credits, credits him with, um, with bringing the Green Peter Ah, wow. Well. Yeah. But um, i just make one more comment when I'm talking about the old days. Uh, I used to work as a summer student up in Loch Furness and Fia, and there was an old major up there, Major Robertson. This is going back to the brown trout and the sea trout, and he used to kill all the trout that he would that would that we would catch. I'd go out fishing in the evenings. He'd kill all the small trout uh, because he thought they were competing with the sea trout, but little did he know that those trout he was killing that were seven inches long, many of them would become smolts the following spring and gone to see a sea trout. So uh, it just shows you how times have changed, you know. Um, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Paddy, uh, everybody we have on the on the podcast, we always ask them a question, and you've been forewarned of this. So uh, I'll ask you now, Paddy, what is your most memorable fish that you caught on the fly? Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I've got big trout on Sheelan, for instance, but it would have to be Mort Follin, the famous uh, angler and fly tire in Galway, and myself were on Glenick Murren Lake in 1987, and I got a sea trout, 8 nine ounces, uh, which I think is the record for the fishery. And uh, we didn't realise it was a sea trout until it came into the boat. We thought it was a salmon, but it was uh, 8 nine ounces, fresh sea trout on the 1st of July, in 1987, which was the last really good year for sea trout. So, and uh, it was good to have Mert's company <laughs> in the boat because you can imagine things were very colourful after yeah, that. Yeah, I'd say he remained there. very quiet all throughout <laughs> the whole proceedings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what did you catch him on, Paddy? A golden olive bumble. Oh, yeah. his was more second favourite fly for the for yeah. for Glenick Murn. He preferred the claret. Yeah. Wow. And wh- uh, what, which beat did you catch him on? Uh, over near the the the, uh, the lunch house on the island, yeah, along oh. the side of the island there, yeah. God, yeah, fantastic. I don't think you'll be seeing fish that size for a long time. Yeah, because yeah. that's one thing about Connemara. There was very rarely, very rarely. What was the specimen weight used to be six pounds, wasn't it? Yeah, for sea trout. Yeah. Very, yeah. they nearly always came from Koran. So that was yeah. that was huge for Costello for mine. Will it feature in your book? Oh, I think there'll have to be a picture of me and Mark with that fish, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Be the only picture of me, I think. But uh, yeah, it's worth, worth putting that in. 
Well, Paddy, thanks a million for joining us. Brilliant insights, uh, scientific insights in terms of, you know, your career and what's been going on in terms of um, the fisheries, in terms of aquaculture, in terms of conservation and habitat. Um, it's an ongoing battle. And I think it's been, it, it's a fight that's even been having to be fought even harder, you know, going forwards. You've done your job. You've done your work. You can step back now and do a bit more fishing and try and enjoy it a bit more, maybe. <laughs> Let's with less pressure. So just to remind people, Paddy is looking for any uh, photos, records, maps, anything, any archival material relating to the sea trout fisheries in Connemara for a book that he's writing. Um, what's the best way to get in contact, Paddy, with you with that? My email is Paddy G. Gargan, there's two G's, Paddy G. Gargan, G-A-R-G-A-N, at gmail.com. Email.com. And we'll include though that email address as well in the show notes and on the social media posts as well. But for now, Paddy Gargan, I'm sure we'll catch up with you again, but thanks a million for joining us on the show. Thanks a lot, lads. I enjoyed it. Our thanks to Paddy Gargan for joining us on the show. And as we said at the start, if anybody has any material that could help out Paddy in his uh, forthcoming book, uh, there is going to be an email link that you can see uh, on any of our social media sites where you can uh, contact Paddy with that. Also then, don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram and myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. <laughs>